BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 55 of the Bowery Boys, Central Park, The Evolution. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello and welcome to the Bowery Boys. I'm Tom Myers. And I'm Greg Young. Thanks again for tuning in because we're now at our part two of our Central Park episode. Uh, we had to wait a week for this one. Yeah, the you know, we, we gave birth to Central Park in the last one. We <laughs> talked about Central Park when it was, you know, but a gleam in the eye mm. of the Big Apple. But now we're going to talk about how it's grown up to that wild and rambunctious place that it is today. Brilliant metaphor. Last week, we really focused on the original idea of Central Park and how it got hatched in the first place. Up until the late 1800s. Until around 1870 is when we stop. This time, we're going to see how the original ideas of the two original architects, Vox and Olmsted, how things really changed over the years, how the original idea couldn't quite fit the park that the city needed. We'll look at how the park changed from this oasis of nature, this virtual like getaway, this capsule of the natural world into a place of public gatherings, into a place of playgrounds, into a place of multiple structures with wide variety of uses. And like most other things in New York City, we'll be telling the story of what happened to Central Park in the later 20th century, specifically the <laughs> 70s and 80s. Yeah, because, uh, you know, you all probably know full well what happened from uh, growing up and listening to the news, but th we're going to tell you why that happened, and how it kind of flipped itself back up and got itself into shape. And is a Central Park that we know and love to visit today. So come with this for part two of The Evolution of Central Park. All right, so before we just dive into the later 19th century, Greg, can you just take a second and take us back to the birth of the park and where, you know, how we got here in the first place? I'll try to give you like a three-minute recap if I Please. can. Okay, we started back when the commissioner's plan, the original map, and then there was no major parkland on it. and uh, The there grid was, system. The grid system. There was a rumbling to create a great park for New York City. Proponents like the newspaper editor William Cullen Bryant 
was one of these people who thought that a park could actually promote morality by people going there. Some early plans actually called for a park in this area called the Jones Wood, which is this forest that was over on the east side. But what was eventually decided on was a park in the central part of the island, which was on 59th Street up to 110th Street. The architects of this new park would be two men by the name of Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox. They were very closely aligned with the city already, and so naturally... Whether it was a fair competition or not, they did win a design competition to design the park, and their plan was called the Greensward Plan, which was a sort of natural, formal escape from the city in the middle of the city. Mm -hmm. Um, Very nature-based. didn't have any sporting areas or playgrounds, something to keep in mind as we progress the episode today. So the state bought up all the land, kicked out all the tenants, which, of course, happened to be a few hundred tenants, including an African-American village by the name of Seneca Village. The basic work on the park started from 1853 to about 1865, but they kept working on it. After the main park land was built, there was many structures inside to build. And whenever they'd finish a part of the park, it seems like people would just start coming in and using the park. There was sort of flexible opening dates, depending <laughs> on where they were going, where they were, what was finished. So anyway, some of the more difficult chores were draining the bogs and the swamps, sculpting the landscape, planting thousands of trees. So when the park was finally finished, who was the park built for? Mm -hmm. It was initially conceived as a park for the upper class with carriages and lulling about with others of your own social class. And, you know, it was also a place to observe nature. It was not a place to play games, essentially. It was not a place to, I don't know. Have fun. <laughs> and certain elements of the park even excluded lower classes, you know, including its location from the homes of many people of the lower class. You know, until not uh, explicitly excluded. I mean, there was nobody checking IDs at the door. No, 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 no. It was just in its sort of design versus how it catered to the upper class and how it did not cater to right. the lower class. Because at the time, 59th Street was way uptown. Exactly. And on top of it, you know, there was really a, a lack of large gathering places. So, And it was even forbidden for large groups to gather together. But these things will change and start changing. So what sparked some of these changes? Like what, what happens to sort of the political nature of the, of the park? Well, in the 1870s, you may be familiar with Boss Tweed of Tammany Hall. Oh, yes. Our friend, Mr. Tweed, he wrested control of the park away from the state, which had created and funded it. Right. Uh, and pulled the control to the city level, and, you know, Boss Tweed, for all practical purposes, ran the city as well. So th- you'd think that that would be a good thing, you know, to give the city control of its park. Well, Tammany Hall, basically. Uh, it, but ha- having Tammany Hall in control of something isn't necessarily the, no. the, the greatest thing in the world. Because corruption follows. And anyway, the city's budget for the park dwindled during the 1870s. It took money to enforce all of these policies of no group gatherings. Well, you have to pour money into something if you want people with money to go there. As the city had less money and put less money into not only taking care of Central Park, but the city's, what, 20 other parks at, at the time. time. It right. wasn't just Central Park. Mm-hmm. Central Park was, of course, the largest. There was less money to care for the park, to enforce these rules, etc. And the park's population was shifting in this time with the city. Now, there were other changes taking place as well. Mm-hmm. Mass transportation was beginning to crawl uptown. Sure. It was getting easier period. to go up there. So more people were heading uptown. Residents were following. 
even settling on the Upper East Side and Upper West Side. People were really, like, literally embracing the park because people were now living along the sides of it. Right, which wasn't the case when the park was built. In fact, in Olmsted and Vox's original plan, so much of the park was landscaped so that you couldn't see any of these traces of urban construction and such. You know, when you walk through the park and followed the little winding trails, you couldn't see any of the smaller buildings that were edging parks. I personally think it's sort of a, a more fascinating thing to, right. to be in this sort of like natural world. And then just to look up and just know that the city is right there, kind of hovering over you. I personally look at it as a positive. Well, that's great, Greg. And I'll tell you, that, that <laughs> takes us into a debate albeit a bit prematurely, because the debate is not only who is the park for, but it's the purpose of the park and the original intention, which was to be an escapist, you know, oasis. And to something a little bit different today, which is still an oasis, but one that's, you know, juxtaposed with the image of apartment buildings popping up over the trees. You know, that's the sort of reality that we live with in today's park. If we go back to the days when Boss Tweed was looking at a diminished budget in the 1870s for Central Park, along with that, rules slackened. A couple of examples here. The ban on Sunday concerts was repealed actually in 1884. There was a ban that was lifted on cycling on the drive. Thank heavens. My goodness. Can you imagine it without cycling and concerts? Roller skating on the paths, sports in the fields. All of these were original bans in Central Park. The keep off the grass regulations were Mm -hmm. starting to be ignored in the 1880s. I mean, literally, what did you do in Central Park if you didn't do those things? (laughs) You walked around and you just observed. Twirled your parasol, looked at sculpture. I mean, this is fantastic. It's beginning to shape up, but there's still a lot of work to do. And, you know, there was a ban originally on commercial enterprises, too. Now, with a dwindling budget, the park was looking for different ways to make money. Mm -hmm. So they started handing out licenses to little, you know, entrepreneurs, and suddenly there were boat rides that were being offered in the lake. There were carriage rides being offered around uh, on the paths. Even a go-kart operator that was operating in the 1880s. So independent merchants were coming in and creating their own unique amusements. And paying the city for the right to do it. And in the meantime, shifting sort of the, well, the popular appeal of the park. But and for people with more money, too, not just the go-kart drivers. You know, there were restaurants that were opening and serving food and drink. In fact, the casino became uh, the first operation in Central Park to serve alcohol. The casino, by the way, yes. I have, if, if I may add, you know how in the last podcast you had mentioned that there were actually four original structures Plan right. for Central Park, one of them being the ladies' refreshment stand. Right, yeah. In fact, the ladies' refreshment stand was transformed into the casino. Ah, because I think I said to you, where is that ladies' refreshment stand? Well, I've been it, looking for it for years. Well, it was the casino, and right. I'm going to tell you what happened to the casino. But the uh, but eventually, yeah, so it became a, for men and women, not just refreshments for women. Oh, fantastic. Briefly, then, it was also at this time that cultural groups were sponsoring statues to be placed in Central Park because the city didn't have money to pay for it, but different clubs and associations could. For instance, many immigrant organizations would pull their money and, and would erect one of these things to someone who, who meant 
something just to their culture. For instance, a Polish organization erected the statue that's nearby Belvedere Castle for King Jagiello. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. And I'll pardon that re- your Polish. I pardon my Polish, but that really dramatic statue of the of that right. king on a horseback with two swords. A lot of statues are like this throughout the park, where you kind of scratch your head, you don't know who they are today. But back then, they were pregnant with a lot of meaning. It was also in the 1860s that the menagerie of animals in Central Park was transformed eventually into a zoo. Uh, We have another podcast about that. And a couple museums opened that would transform the park forever. And we won't go into great detail about those right now because they're podcast-worthy as well. First was the Natural History Museum opening in 1877, designed by Vox himself. okay. And on the that's on the west side of the park. And three years later, on the east side, the Metropolitan Museum of Art opened, also designed by Vox. Well, I mean, I guess it does make sense to have the you know the guy who helped design the park to design these massive structures that are going to go into it, so that they all kind of they create a dialogue, as they right. say. Oh, There's they a conversation between the buildings and the park. And he wanted their facades to work with the natural environment of, sure. of his park. So that really gets us up to the end of the 19th century. Um, and what, what happened? We just sort of coasted toward the 21st? Well, around the turn of the century in 1898, we're feeding four other boroughs now because it's now a consolidated city, which is now con- connected by a subway system. So you don't just have Manhattanites going, you have everybody because now the city is a lot larger and they can get there a lot quicker. I wonder what Olmsted thought about that. And you know what else came in the 20th century, Tom? The automobile came in knocking, and you know that they must have loved the automobile. <laughs> they were obviously banned, but they were, because they did have these back then, automobile activists would actually send people into the park uh, to get arrested because you couldn't have these smoky, horseless carriages into the park. So they actually kind of forced the issue into the, into the courts. I'm glad things really haven't changed in the city in 100 years. <laughs> Not at all. Judges eventually approved these automobiles as being pleasure carriages, which were some of the some of the things that could come into the park. Of course, they fought in vain to keep cars out. Like through the next couple decades, eventually, in fact, traffic lights were installed in the 1930s. Unfortunately, with all these cars, of course, it actually need more money to maintain the park because autos cause damage. They cause pollution. They need to be regulated. Cars and parks just normally do not mix. They don't even mix today. Also not friendly to the original vision was this progressive movement that was happening right now in other parks and was slowly making its way into Central Park. The idea of why have all of this greenery when you need places for people to go do things and play baseball and have a place where children can go play. It's difficult to argue with these because it's such an altruistic communal idea. But really, it's not exactly what the park was, quote, intended for. And I just have to add this because I feel like this is sort of the final nail in the coffin of the original Greensward plan. In 1929, Mayor Jimmy Walker turned the casino into an actual nightclub. It was was the Roaring Twenties. It it was during the Prohibition, but they totally sold alcohol. It had even gotten busted. (laughs) It's owned by the city. 
keep in mind. Um, but the, back when it was the Swanky Nightclub Casino, people like Ethel Merman performed there. It was a big uh, hangout for celebrities and not surprising all the bigwigs in the Tammany Hall circuit. The only respite for those who really wanted to hold a little bit of nature in Central Park is luckily it lived on in what was called hobbyists. In the 1890s is when people, bird watchers, first started coming to the park and really organizing now of course you have thousands of bird watchers that go there every year it's a it, big scene it really is what's well, an extraordinary place there's birds on migratory trips back and forth they always stop at central park well in the area we call them rambles yes. today is still very well known for its bird watching and you know not just bird Among watching but there's i mean horseback riding you know back in the day they had horses there for just regular conveyance but you know through the 20th century they would have horse riding clubs right. and i think they might even still have a vestige of one or two of them today i believe they still have riding paths you know bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the u.s economy in 2022 investments like acquiring america's largest biogas producer archaea energy and starting up new infrastructure in the gulf of mexico it's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Back to this progressive movement, I, if I had to indicate one thing that typified what this progressive movement was, it's actually the building of the very first playground in Central Park. It seems hard for me to believe this, but the first playground was built in 1926. 26? It was the Heckscher Playground, and it's at 61st Street and where 7th Avenue would be, so it's over on the west side. It was named for a philanthropist named August Heckscher. 
who donated money for its construction. And in fact, he was rather influential businessman and convinced it to kind of get built. Now, it's hard for me to believe that people would get so outraged about a playground, but they did. There was all this upper class uproar that a playground would sort of demean the park even further, just allow all sorts of types into New York City. So what was happening? What were children doing for the previous 75 years? Were they bird watching? Well, I was going to say that there, you know, this was an area that was built for children. I mean, you know, there was a, it was a specific part of Central Park, but you had, it was one of these subtle things. You had to have money to enjoy it. For instance, the carousel mm-hmm. is in this area and has been there for a couple decades before the playground. But the thing is, is that it was really expensive to ride. It was actually the equivalent of about what one worker at the time made an hour. So just oh. what's you know minimum wage right now? You know seven eight dollars. Right. Imagine that's how much a ride would be. So not every child can just hop on. But this was this idea was like, oh, you don't need money to go to the park. You can just go and hang out for free. So they thought that that would attract the wrong type. They they said that quote, it was designed as a park where people could go and rest and walk and drive and that it was intended to be maintained with grass and trees. And they were just, you know, they were equally offended by the concept of just this asphalt. And monkey bars. And monkey bars and slides. Right. But it seems silly, this whole notion of preventing this playground. But they went ahead and did it, and it basically kicked the door down for this sort of progressive era to occur in the park. Because suddenly, well, let's just say it worked. Children came from all over town. Parents brought their kids to the park so they could just let them run wild. It was fun. Yeah. Of course. Imagine. Well, in the late 20s, it experienced some more financial woes. The, the park itself was deteriorating. There was not enough money to keep the upkeep of this large public space. It even became a symbol of the Great Depression. Now, do you remember in the last podcast, I said that the park had to be built. Ar- there was a reservoir yes. there, a pre-existing yes. Croton Reservoir, a upper and a lower reservoir. The park had to be built around it. There wasn't any need anymore for at the lower reservoir, at least the, the upper reservoir, of course, is still there. People mm-hmm. jog around, around it. it. Jog yeah. around it. There was a lot of wrangling about what to really do with this because, of course, being the this era, you know, people didn't want it turned into a bunch of monkey bars. But <laughs> but in fact, they what they decided was to remove it entirely and create a great lawn. Of course, now it is called the Great Lawn. Right. But so they started tearing it up. But you know, then it's, this is during the Great Depression. Underneath the reservoir are these tunnels because okay. you have now the Great Depression. You have tons of homeless people. So a lot of men build little shanties, shanty town here. And so, I mean, these were a great shame because this is you know the pride of New York Central Park, and it's filled with men who have lost their homes. So eventually, a lot of these men get jobs and what I'm about to mention in a minute, but this is really sort of a call to action to the park. So they were living in these tunnels in these shanty towns b- while it was being transformed or before it became the lawn? Or? Well, it, take, you know, it took a few years. So in the, it was in during the process of it becoming, because you know, they couldn't just rip up a reservoir and throw down a lawn. There's lots of things to do in draining. Right. But to the rescue of Central Park, you're not going to believe me when I say it in this Coming to the rescue of Central Park. Yes. Well, it's our old friend Mayor Fiora LaGuardia, who was elected in 1933. And coming in with him is his brand new Parks Commissioner. Who is it? It's Bobby Moses. You know, it's been too long since we talked about our friend. I know, Robert Moses. But this is his very first year. 
this is before he really has done a lot of things uh, that really embitter the city. And this is 1933? Correct. So this is his first year in office. He decides to do something about the park. Now, his philosophy for all the parks, and indeed perhaps for all of New York, you know, he believed in parks as pure public spaces, unpretentious, very serviceable to the community. We could almost say he didn't care a whit for the natural aspects of the park. I mean, he, that's overstating it, but that was the least of his worries, essentially. An anti-Olmstead. Within his first years of the job, what he also had, luckily at his disposal, was FDR's New Deal programs, mm-hmm. which poured a lot of money into public works. So believe it or not, the Great Depression, in a way, helped Central Park, because a lot of new jobs and new projects infused themselves into the city, kept the park afloat, you know, we often judge Moses by the results of things that didn't work in his time or had negligible effects on the city. But I'm going to just give you a list of some of the things that happened during his regime in the early years just here at Central Park. And it's fairly impressive. Please do, because I feel like I'm sort of, you know, biased and perhaps we <laughs> imbiased well, some he's, of well, our he, listeners. He's always been a complicated individual, so you can't, you know, it's right. hard to like sit on one side of the fence or the other. Um, you know, he renovated the zoo, as we talked about in a prior podcast. He furnished up to 22 different playgrounds. Um, okay, from one playground when before he was commissioner to like 22 playgrounds within just a few years. Mm-hmm. Many, many ball fields as well. In 1934, he, he requisitioned the area that would become the conservatory garden. It would take several years for it to get to its state that it is now. The casino, because it represented all that was sort of like bad about Central Park, being this swanky Prohibition-era nightclub, <laughs> demolished, destroyed it, replaced it with Rumsey Playfield, uh-huh. which is there today. And actually, that's where you see all the summer stage concerts. So it's in that area. So when you, when you go there, just think of all the uh, Tammany Hall bigwigs drinking their gin martinis. Moses also commissioned Tavern on the Green. He achieved a lot of public support to build statues in the same way that they had done in the 1880s and 1890s. But these were statues like the Alice in Wonderland. The famous Balto dog statue was in 1925. And many of these statues were commissioned with the help of private grants, too. Yeah, He he, was able to secure private money. Well, he pulled those in. He thought that that was a very easy way. You know, he standardized the entire park. All the signage was the same color. It was... Café au lait color. As they <laughs> That's, is that really the color? Yes. I mean, I could say tan, but everything... every like a everything, color. Everything I read said café au lait. So café au lait, park service color. Um, uh-huh. All the walkways and the benches were all standardized. He was seen as a savior to Central Park um, he, because, honestly, he gave it a kick in the pants at the right time when it needed it. It needed a young parks commissioner to come in and <laughs> shake it up. Yes. Now, the 40s and 50s bring il- even more iconic Central Park features, like Woolman Rink came along in 1949. It was named after a woman named Kate Woolman, who donated $600,000 for its construction. Um, in this, in the '60s, later it would be open for uh, for concerts. In the 1950s, here comes Joseph Papp and the Public Theater, and he brings Shakespeare in the Park onto the Great Lawn. People don't realize that it was just performed on the grass, like they would just prop up a stage there. Surprise! Robert Moses wasn't a fan of Joe <laughs> Joe Papp and wasn't a fan of Shakespeare in the Park because he complained about the grass. 
And he, he declared, in fact, that he would enforce keep off the grass laws and would arrest people, you know, arrest actors. I don't know. I mean, like, he really disliked this. He thought this was a bad direction to go. Well, it also would involve, you know, park security and just more park maintenance to deal with the hordes coming to, you know, see these theatrical productions. So Pat basically said, reportedly said, I, th- I think this might be more apocryphal than anything, but Pat reportedly said, let's build the bastard a theater. Oh, Greg. <laughs> That sounds like a pap smear to me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so in 1962, the Delacorte Theater was built. And to this day, it's where they still have Shakespeare in the Park. And anyone visiting New York during the summer needs to really check out the Shakespeare in the Park website to check out the schedule and see how to get tickets. It's not always easy to get those tickets. But once you land those free seats, you'll be really happy you There's, have them. They always have some amazing shows. So this brings us up to the 60s, Tom, and thing, this is where it gets really crazy, Uh-oh. the 60s. Now, with all these bans on large gatherings, they, they weren't really hot on protesting in Central Park. Right. Th- though there was um, the very first... It hurts the grass, after all. It hurts the grass. It's, just, it's, it's, not, it's not bringing proper moral environment. But believe it or not, the first protest in Central Park was a, a, a women's right to vote, a protest that was in 1914... But in general, these were frowned upon. Right. Well, enter the 60s and enter Fun Mayor John Lindsay and his parks commissioners, one of which included August Heckscher. Does that name sound familiar? You he's, mean Mr. Playground? He's the grandson oh. of Mr. Playground. He becomes one of, he becomes a parks commissioner, just keeps it all oh, in the that's family. That's great. <laughs> what Lindsay and his parks commissioners did were they wanted to really encourage large gatherings in the park quite the opposite of of anyone else he wanted to actually create gigantic groups of people that would cause you know excitement fun chaos Um, do we like john Lindsay? i mean i'm this sounds great he sounds like the best mayor ever well you know he was the he was the mayor during the stonewall riots during that podcast you know he was he was sort of an unsuccessful mayor some of the things he put in motion sort of set New York on its downward spiral. But some of the, his ideas that he had are intriguing today, right. actually. Um, he, what he did was he created these happenings. You know, what you do is you fill the park with people. They eventually, it, and it being the 60s, it appealed to what I guess the old fogies would call the hippie generation, mm. encouraging large groups of young people to do things here. And the centerpiece of I mean, all... The- right there, he sounds like the coolest mayor <laughs> ever. Yeah, you know, it's cool. Uh, but the Bethesda Fountain was actually the center for a lot of these gatherings. Uh, people would, like, dance in the fountain nude. There'd be open <laughs> marijuana smoking. I rest um, my case. In, the 19, in 1967 and 68, there were a series of B-ins, B-E-I-N, you know, like sit-ins, but uh-huh. instead of just sitting in, you be... Uh, New Year's Eve of 1967, there were thousands of young people. They even burnt down a Christmas tree. It was all fine with the city. <laughs> of course, we're not making fun of any of this. We're just laughing at it's so what, intriguing. But and also at what a sharp turn to the left the city and its park had taken. This is such a far cry from both Robert Moses's vision of a family park and mm. Olmsted's vision of an upper class park. In 1969, of course, you have the you know the first gay pride met at Sheep's Meadow. Mm. 
I know this is going to sound hard to believe, but all this wild chaos that happened in the park crashed directly into the financial crisis of the 70s. So the, the park itself beca- fell into great disrepair by this time. There were very few resources to monitor it, to police the park. The New York Times, as quoted, said it was dirty, unkempt, a vandalized shadow of its former self. Even when the city itself started to emerge from this like horrible financial crisis, the Central Park did not benefit from this. It was still very much a sort of like a bad place to be. Places like the the castle and the dairy, they were either just sort of abandoned or they were used for storage. Um, and just sort of sad to see these places, you know, not used for their intention anymore. Well, I suppose if you have, you know, a big part of your budget stripped away from you, this is what happened. And it needs a lot of money. It's huge. So unfortunately, it became a sort of a symbol for crime. It seems like every time that a crime happened in Central Park, you would make the national news. Mm. In 1980, the felony arrests that happened in Central Park were greater than all the years of the 19th century combined. Hmm. Between 1979 and 1986, there were 28 murders in the park, which, I, you know, that sounds horrible. Actually, it's kind of fair compared to the rest of the city, but it's, it's just saying it was not spared a lot of this downturn in, in crime. Unfortunately, all this culminates in some, something we've all heard about in 1989 with the attack of a woman named Trisha Mila, uh, or, or we know her more popularly as the Central Park jogger, who was raped and viciously attacked in the Central Park. This grabbed really national headlines, really shook people almost by the lapels and said, you know, you've got to do something about this crime. Because even at this time, Central Park was still sort of America's Central Park. And oh, sure. this was a sign of something far worse. Well, the biggest park in the biggest city. It, it's, it underscores a lot of things. But luckily, by this time, there is some gradual help coming to the park. It's already started. Yes, it, please turn this beat around. <laughs> so this, though this, that happened in 1989, but, but change was happening already in progress. In 1980, this extraordinary deal was struck between the city and a group of concerned private citizens. And what happened was the, the formation of a group called the Central Park Conservancy, who would oversee and basically curate the park, mm. almost as if it were a museum, an exhibit. an exhibit or something. It's kind of unusual for a city-owned property to sort of be given over to a private group to manage, mm. but that's what they had to do you know, back then. The city was desperate financially and certainly had a lot of bigger fish to fry in 1980 than just this park. So they passed it over to the Conservancy. The very first president, her name is Elizabeth Barlow Rogers, who I call, who I've call I called on the blog, I called her the queen of Central Park. <laughs> um, she literally wrote the book on Central Park. I think she actually wrote a couple books, one of them called Rebuilding Central Park. Her efforts and the efforts of many others during this time through fundraising and just very methodical restoration slowly brought Central Park back. And this work was mostly being done with private money. Too. Yes, it was involved getting a lot of private business owners and citizens involved. For instance, I mentioned the Woman's Skating Rink earlier. It had fallen, like everything else, into disrepair. So they called up Donald Trump. So Donald Trump poured money into that and, and renovated it. Another place is Strawberry Fields which opened in 1985. And now this is the park area that's right across the street from the Dakota Apartments on West 72nd Street. You know, that was where John Lennon was shot and killed at the Dakota. His widow, 
Yoko Ono donated a lot of funds into this area of the park. It's a beautiful little garden area, and the centerpiece is this mosaic on the sidewalk that was actually mosaic pieces from Mm -hmm. Pompeii. And it spells the word imagine. And still today, they're raising money, you know, through direct mail as well. I know that I frequently receive something in the mail, you know, to donate or become a member of the Central Park Conservancy. Well, you can, like, we can actually become part of the park as as one way to look at it. I mean, you can, if you're bitter, you can look at it and say, well, the city should be paying for this. Or you can say, you know what, I can sculpt out a little bit of Central Park myself by doing something, by donating to any particular place within the park. The Greensward plan never had gigantic orange flags. No, it didn't. In 2005, the artist Christo and Jean-Claude brought their incredible exhibit called The Gates. It was 7,500 orange gates that wound their way up to the park, over 23 miles of park. I'm telling you, as silly as it sounded on paper... Because they put that up in the winter, it was so beautiful. Spectacular. It was really spectacular. And you just kind of can't believe that the city pulled something un- so unusual together. Central Park has literally returned to becoming the center of the city, even though it may not be sort of the center of business or the center of social interaction in the city. It's the easiest place to go to lose yourself in the city and still be in the city mindset. Which is funny because, you know, it was created as a place to go and forget the city. And I don't know about you, but every time I go, I'm reminded of why I love the city so I think much. it's more, I think it's one of the most New York urban places ever. Right. And it is the most one-of-a-kind park in the world. And so that ends our two-part survey on New York's most popular park, Central Park. Thank you for taking a stroll through the park with us. You can also go online to see photos and documents related to the building and expansion and evolution of the park at the website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. If you're on Facebook, you can also join us there by just typing the words Bowery Boys and joining our group. Well, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.